Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Across the course of this Ashes series, we've been working in partnership with Charles Tirrett. Want to start the year wearing something sharp? Charles Tirrett has a collection of smart casual menswear, all now with an extra 10% off their current sale using the code WISDOM10. That's code WISDOM10 to get an extra 10% off their January sale. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We've got quite a lot to get through this morning. We'll do a brief preview of the Hobart Test before catching up on all the other international cricket that's been taking place or about to take place around the world. We'll also revisit the latest happenings at Yorkshire, answer your questions and more over the course of the next hour or so. I'm Yazran and with me today in person is the features editor of Wisdom.com, Tar Hashim, and the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. Um, unless Omicron intervenes again, we hope to be back recording these in person for the foreseeable. I uh, hope you all appreciate the upgrade in sound quality in this episode. Um, let's get the men's ashes chat out of the way first. Reporters in Australia are saying that James Anderson will miss the fifth test of the series with Ollie Robinson returning to the side in his place. But I guess the biggest news from an England point of view is that England have another Ashes fifth test debutant. Sam Billings follows uh, your, your Boyd rankings, your Scott Borthwick's and your Mason Cranes and is set to become the 700th man to play test cricket for England. Taha, he's had a strange career in a way. He's a near permanent fixture in England's white ball squads without actually ever getting on the field that often. He's not played that much first class cricket. Uh, he rarely, if ever, has had a central contract. Uh, he goes around playing leagues, but often doesn't actually play in them. He's often on the bench. I think he's played just 22 IPL games in six years. His first last re- record is pretty good when he does play. Uh, you spoke to his coach at Kent, Matt Walker, earlier in the week. So tell us about Sam Billings, the Red Bull cricketer. Yeah, well, like you said, it's he's, he's just not played a lot of cricket. And it's not just uh, Red Bull cricket, like, um, like you mentioned there. Um, he's always, you know, he's been a regular in England's white ball squads since 2015. Um, but he's always that sort of the next man in, but also the, the first man out. He's he's always been that kind of reserve. Uh, and so he'll be in their squads during the summer. 
uh, he'll then go to franchise cricket in the winter and not necessarily play. Uh, and then when he does go to the IPL, he misses uh, the chance to play early season championship cricket for Kent. Um, so we come to the point where he's 30 years old now and he's only played 74 first class matches. Uh, to, to put that into context, um, I think the only two batters uh, in England's Ash squad who've played fewer, uh, Pope and Crawley, who are several years younger. And I think they've both played 60 something matches as well. Uh, so I spoke to his coach at Kent, Matt Walker, and uh, this was the kind of point that he mentioned as well. He's just not played a lot of cricket and this is this is kind of the issue he's had. Um, but there is a Red Bull cricketer in there. There's been glimpses of that. So um, a few years ago, after he came back from that injury that kind of ruled him out of any chance of playing that World Cup, he ended that 2019 season quite strongly, uh, hit three centuries in a row. Um, one against Knotts, who had... Ashwin playing for them uh, and then two um, against Yorkshire at Headingley uh, and he talked or Matt, Matt talked about um, just kind of the technical changes that Billings has made as well he kind of uh, used to have this kind of swing which was quite up and down and kind of shaky and, and Billings himself I don't know if you remember this but he did kind of like a Sky Masterclass uh, in that summer of 2020 when he was back in the side against Ireland and he talks about how he'd watch videos of Coley and just has this kind of still simple technique um which is quite in a way quite refreshing <laughs> we're constantly talking about the the funkiness of England's techniques and why I imagine people might look at Billings and, and Rebel Cricket and, and quite like the look of him uh and he's done you know he's done well when he's played he still hasn't played that much so after that 2019 season obviously with 2020 Covid you know disrupted any chances of him really playing much Rebel Cricket that year uh he only played a few matches this summer as well so there's still not a lot to look at in terms of the record. Um, but yeah, I mean, Matt talked about a guy who's learned to play a lot straighter. He's just kind of a lot more confident in, in his technique. I mean, the key thing here is now that like, if he if he, if he he does play, which it seems likely, he's coming in. Sure, he's got runs in the big bash, but it's such a, it's such a tough ask to immediately come in and perform. And we, we've been talking this whole, these last few weeks about... Um, England's lack of preparation. This is the constant topic. And the fact that it's taken them now a few tests, you know, three pretty heavy defeats to actually get into the series and play well in Sydney. And now you're asking Billings to come in and perform immediately. I mean, the, the other quirk, by the way, is that, you know, he's probably going to keep. Um, and I mean, he's brought in, been brought in as gloveman. But for Kent, the last few years, he's not kept in first-class cricket. Ollie Robinson does that job. Uh, he's kept in one first-class match for Kent um, in the last three years. Um, so it's a really tough ask for him um, but it's an opportunity and this is what the, the guys kind of wanted you know he's he wanted opportunity he talked about after that run of form in 2019 and talk, he, he, he explained how those centuries those knocks kind of gave him the confidence and the you know made him realise that oh he could play test cricket the problem is he just hasn't had the chance to really make a case for it and this is a very unexpected opportunity and well, look we don't really know where England go from here. Who's going to be their wicketkeeper? We don't know what happens with Butler. We don't know what the situation might be with Bairstow, whether he continues as a batter or a keeper. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a chance. Um, and yeah, good luck to him. Phil, he's got quite a, quite a weird first-class record. So we're looking this up the other day. So he averages 23 in first-class cricket at home at Canterbury, the, the ground that Zach Crawley was criticising earlier this week. Um, so in non-Canterbury first-class games, he actually averages about 42, which is pretty good. Um on what Taha said, 
Do you think England are setting up to fail a little bit? It's, the, <laughs> la- the lack of preparation. They already have. And uh, Billings will obviously relish the opportunity to play. And some players have done very well in the past, having not played that much. But I almost feel, I almost feel sorry for Billings to a degree because I actually think he's got a really good chance of being a decent test cricketer, being a decent keeper who bats seven. But, you know, one bad test match could, uh, as you kind of saw with James Bracey only having two bad test matches, one bad test match can uh, significantly put you down the pecking order. Yeah, look, the boot has gone squarely um, into England and with good reason for quite a while. Uh, but in this instance, I don't think we can we can really criticise them. It wasn't, they didn't, create La Nina to wipe out two and a half weeks of preparation. Uh, the nature of the beast these days, of course, is that you don't play tour games between test matches and their two wicket keepers are both injured. So I don't think they can really be blamed for having to think on the hoof on this one. And uh, and so Billings happens to be the right the right man for in, in the right, ti- right time, right place. Um, I think he's a really good watchable interesting and resourceful cricketer uh he's a good bloke they like him a lot um it's the little things that that have an effect sometimes the fact that he drove 500 miles from you know one side of australia or part of one side of australia to the other to just to play in this test match um when he was minutes from flying flying back out and those kinds of things they do register it within the setup and so on um he's he's a kind of cheerful sort of figure and as we've seen, he's become a more useful international cricketer in the last couple of years. And so and so I guess it is an intriguing one-off opportunity. I don't personally see it becoming anything really more than that. I, I don't... I, I think it would be um, quixotic, to say the least, if uh, having lurched from Bairstow to Butler to, and back again and folks just being this kind of spectre on the horizon... And then we go to a kind of a keeper who's kept far less than either of either of Bairstow or Butler, uh, and because you know he might be sparky and he might and he might be able to catch a few. He's not a wicket keeper. I know he's done it for sure, and he's a very good all round athlete cricketer. He's a brilliant fielder, all the rest of it. But he's not going to be keeping wicket at West in the West Indies. I mean, if he if he if he makes runs at Hobart, then possibly he becomes a kind of a fantasy option at six or seven, possibly. And it's worth pointing out that everything is on, on the table now. Everything. And from April, what we will see is, incidentally, and this is not unrelated to the billing story, what we will see come April is how how devoted to the to the, the test match cap are the likes of Billings, Vince, Livingston, Clark, etc. These kinds of peripheral players, but with talent. We will see from April, really, who's who's got it, who really, really wants it. Um, I don't blame Sam Billings for following the white ball around the world, but his he identified relatively early on in his professional career that his his path to not just money because he's got a lot of it anyway, but to to kind of professional respect and the garlands that come with that was through white ball cricket. That's fair enough. That's 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 where he identified his career going. The Red Bull stuff is no coincidence. It's, it's not. It's not. He's not been harshly done by that. He's played seventy odd games and he's thirty years old. That is a large part by design. 
and not just his own decision. Of course, the ECB would have been leaning on him here and there. You know, he'd have probably had incremental contracts in the past. And so they'd have said, right, well, you know, go and work on your white ball game. We encourage you to go to the IPL, etc., etc., etc. But as we see a game ever more diverging and red ball and white ball becoming these two kind of, you know, there's a chasm between the two in, increasingly in, in English cricket. Um, it's, it's an interesting kind of crossover here for Billings. My, my guess is that it will be a crossover that will last for a week. Um, but I might be wrong. And, and if I am wrong, then, then, then so be it. Because a Billings who does work in Red Bull cricket would be a really, really useful player in that side. I would drive 500 miles to play for England and I can't really drive. So I don't think you should get too much credit for <laughs> and that. And I, I, I would drive 500 <laughs> more. Um, also, yeah, just on that though, the players you've mentioned there who... Uh, the start of the summer could be really interesting. The players who have done really well in white ball cricket have showed glimpses of promise in red ball cricket. I understand why they chased the white ball because if you don't have an England contract, I think most of the guys you mentioned there don't have an England contract, even an incremental one. Um, it's you know these guys have short careers. It's kind of fair enough to chase chase the white ball. Um, yeah, and, I mean, and, and I mean, also the, the days of getting superior and, and moralistic about about this, I think they're long gone. I think that argument is now now defunct. But what we will see is increasingly. Uh, an independent decision within within the, from that individual, and I think with with nothing being off off the table anymore, and really a sense of a kind of year dot, the recalibration of England's Test team starts now. Uh, it would be I think we'll learn quite a lot about certainly the batters who we constantly talk about as being in the churn. Well, it'd be interesting to see from April onwards which ones really, really want it and which ones are comfortable just to bounce along. Mm. Uh, related to the billing stories, there have been reports in the in the Times, I think, that one of Ashley Giles' recommendations after this series is that centrally contracted players will be asked to leave the IPL early if they're going to be part of the test side in the summer. So we won't have a situation like last summer where the IPL guys all missed a series against the number one side in the world. Tar, what do you make of that? Cause that's quite a, quite a dramatic change to what we saw last summer. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> It was quite it was quite jarring last summer where those those players came back early um because the IPL had basically been postponed because of COVID, uh and they still didn't feature in those tests against New Zealand. I thought that was a an odd situation, especially with those guys quite a few of them being centrally contracted. Well, firstly, it hasn't happened yet. It's a it's a story that uh Lizzie Ammon ran on the Times, I believe she broke it. Um news hound that she is. And uh if it were to happen, I think I th- my instinct is that it's quite well. It's a very good PR move, um, but it's grounded in logic and sense. Uh, I think it would be quite radical, and I think there is a chance, certainly with certain figures, figures of power within the dressing room, player powers, that it may well backfire. Um, but I can understand the urge to try and rebalance. The, the scales on this this particular issue um if if we if we are serious about that first test match in in early may if we are properly respectful of the the primacy of it the sanctity of it and all the rest of it then uh anyone who's going to have a chance to appear in that game has to have three or four weeks of practice of course they do of course they do. we see the folly of going in into test cricket if you're english in particular Without without any Red Bull cricket behind you, um, this to me looks like a, an interesting uh, 
attempt just to try and rebalance it, as I say. And it's not that they're banned from playing in it. It's, it's that they are will be required to return home to be considered to play test cricket earlier than they would be in previous years. And I think that's a good thing. Mm, absolutely. I think, I guess the elephant in the room is that, well, not, it's not really the elephant in the room, but these guys get paid a lot of money, these, these essentially, essentially contract players. If you're, if you're being paid around about a million <clears throat> pounds a year, and a big part of that is to play 10, 10 to 12 test matches a year for England, if you're not, if you're, you're not going to be fully prepared for two or three of them, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah ge- genuine question. I might be wrong, but does the IPL's expansion help with this as well? Because the worry might be that players don't get picked up, right? But now you've got more teams, more chance you're going to get picked up. Yeah, it's a good point. And I guess the, the merry-go-round of players coming in and out um, will have to increase by, by the logic of, it, of there being more, hmm. more IPL taking place. I don't think any cricketer who, who has any contract with the ECB um, can argue with the, the ethics of, of what sounds like it could become Giles' position and therefore the position of the ECB. I don't think anybody can argue with the ethics of that. You are, you are paid if you are Rory Burns and Zach Crawley who are on Test match contracts. You're paid four hundred grand a year. Um, that's a lot of money to play one form of the game, um, and that will obviously be be ramped up considerably for those who have multi-format contracts, full central contracts. Uh, with all the riches of the game, there is a sense, there is a, a, a tendency for uh, players to become disproportionately powerful. Well. Um, if that if that power can be neutered somewhat, and there can be a, a, a better sense of balance across the board, then I think that has to be positive for the game. Um, and I don't don't really think overall there's going to be a massive amount of kickback from the really big beasts. And we know who we're talking about here: players who are in who are in demand to play Test cricket as well as IPL cricket. But also, how many players is this, is this actually affecting? Well, precisely, Stokes. Bearstow, Archer, maybe Butler. Yeah. Yeah. Wokes, I guess, sometimes been there. I think one thing that I think has changed, so there's a there's a increased willingness for English players to have experience in the IPL in that twenty fifteen to nineteen period where England were trying to get better at white ball cricket. I think that argument doesn't quite hold as much anymore. I don't think English the big English players need the IPL. I mean, look at Australia who won the World Cup. I know, okay, yeah, that's a, a bit of a bit of a freak, I guess, but a lot of experienced international players who just haven't... Like Mitchell Stark's one of the best T20 bowlers in the world. He hasn't played the IPL for years. They don't need it. I, I think there should be an element of flexibility. If there are players earlier on in their white ball careers who are also in the test team, I'd be more willing to make the exception for one or two players. Uh, you know, if you had like a, a, a 24-year-old Harry Brook who's playing all three formats, for example, in a few years' time, I'd be open to letting yeah. him play a full IPL because yeah. that would be good for him. Yeah. But the players who play the IPL consistently for a few years now, I don't think they need the IPL. Yeah, and I would also just add briefly that uh, it's simplistic and inaccurate to say that England cricketers want to play the IPL first and then mm. the rest of it can yeah. follow. It's not borne out. Players do pull out of the IPL. Players, you know, Milan, Wokes, both of them, didn't appear in the IPL that was on in the autumn time because it would impinge on their preparations for the T20 World Cup um, and the obviously the Ashes. So, so that notion that the power in the hearts and minds for, for English cricketers and other international cricketers is now focused solely in the IPL and the rest can fix, fix itself around those riches is, is not accurate. 
And Livingston, well before he was a big name, he he pulled out of an IPL to focus on cat championship cricket, which was two or three years ago now. Yeah. Um, moving on, on James Anderson, who is probably not going to play at Hobart. Michael Vaughan said this week that despite Anderson still being at the top of his game, England should consider moving on from him. He argued that Warren and McGrath both bowed out with a few years still left in the tank. He said, just before, just because you can still perform does not mean you should keep going on and on. It's not about sacking Jimmy. It's about what is right for English cricket. The right thing is to transition, but to do it respectfully. So what do you make of that? Anderson, obviously, then in the, in the same newspaper, actually, that was in the Telegraph, Anderson in the Telegraph responded to Vaughan, basically saying, I, d- I disagree. Yeah. Um, I, I read that Vaughan piece, but I'm just... For my clarification, did he did he mean just cutting him out completely after this tour? He wasn't especially clear, yeah. but it was. Okay. He said the word transition there, so I I presume that means phasing him out. I guess. I mean, that's just kind of inevitable, right? He will be eventually phased mm. out. I do think there's a way. I think what's kind of complicated is the fact that you have Anderson and Broad. Um, if you just have one of those, I guess, senior bowlers, um, there's a way to then kind of balance it with bringing in youngsters and having someone share the new ball. Um, you know, it's, if you look at England's one-day side after 2015, um, they cut Anderson Broad and that kind of was was key in helping Chris Wokes become that new ball bowler. And, and I can kind of see kind of see value in, in, in what Vaughan is saying. Um, but I don't think, I don't think it's the right thing to just, cut those two out or uh, sorry just cut Anderson out I think they are already kind of phasing both out they don't play every test match uh, Anderson's played quite a few this year but still look they didn't play him in that first test they you know like you're saying they might not play him in in Hobart it's already kind of happening so I don't think you need to really divert from where you're going right now um, but I do kind of get the the argument where even if a player is still able to form that you do have to look at what what that impact that's having on the, on the players that are coming through next um if you look at Joffre Archer I remember when he bowled so well in that 2019 Ashes he was taking that new ball alongside Stuart Broad so you had that one senior guy but then you had Archer with responsibility that new role and he and he thrived and he was a different bowler the next summer um when he was kind of that change bowler and so so i i get value in vaughan's argument i don't i don't think it should be completely rubbished out but i also disagree with the notion that we should just cut ties with anderson um i think he's a phenomenon um i think he's he's obviously still one of england's best bowlers maybe england's best bowler um he's still got to play he's not going to play every test and that's that's the way to do it forward. You you have them play the odd test. They're not going to play the whole series, and and you you rotate your quicks. So this is what we're seeing with Australia right now. <laughs> you know we, we can see that with England as well. Um, so and also that is really not the issue of this series, has it? You know James Anderson. Uh, you could argue that England haven't looked as penetrative as Australia at times, but <laughs> the central issue with England and that test side remains the batting. So feels odd to just constantly focus on this argument of Anderson Broad and what happens with those two. They should still be a part of this test side going forward in the next few months and then in the next year while they're still performing. I mean, when you've got these two guys who are England's greatest, I think you should try and eke out any, everything you can from them. Mm, absolutely. Um, Phil, Dan asks, Scott Boland really showed up the English bowlers this series and how to get wickets without being express 
pace. I mean, absolute express pace. Do you think Anderson, especially and the other England bowlers, are, are simply happy to bowl economically and for their averages? Do you think they did everything they could to take wickets? Well, I'm sure they did everything they could to take wickets. Uh, whether they were able to is another question. Uh, I mean, look, we could we could do a series of shows on why England bowlers don't bowl as fast as Australian bowlers. We could do days and weeks of shows on that particular question. I guess Dan's point is that Scott Boland isn't quicker than England's bowlers. But, I mean, the, the, over, the overall average, right, of England's bowlers will be below Scott Boland, right? He's still, yeah, he's still yeah. pushing 85 to 87 when he's, when he's bowling sharp, right? Yeah. Um, apart from, obviously, Wood, no England bowler is really getting up to that kind of mark. England's probably through the air sharpest next bowler is probably Chris Wokes and he's probably in the 83 84 kind of kind of bracket um as we know Robinson who struggles for stamina is is down in the 78 79 mark um the the reasons are so multi-layered uh and all of it overlaps from schedules to pitches to overhead conditions to athleticism um and sporting culture sporting oh, yeah. culture for sure absolutely in australia you have light and space to 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 develop and to play we have rain and tiny little pockets uh if we're lucky and we also of course have a have a have a system which is massively skewed against large parts of the the, the social demographic right so all kinds all of these elements come into play it's part for sure on well, scott sure. boland yeah why is he taking wickets well he's taking wickets in part because he's 32 he knows his he knows the conditions inside out he is the australian equivalent of say a martin bicknell right you bring him in bring when bicknell played four test matches i think it was and he came back for a couple in his early to mid 30s maybe even slightly older than that swung it around corners bowled south africa out won a test match in 2003 here um scott boland has earned his stripes for a decade and more playing in in australian state and grade cricket so he knows his conditions but he's also clearly he's a proper fast bowler he might not be an express quick fast bowler but he's a proper fast bowler he's strong he's broad-shouldered he hits the deck he hits the splice and he bowls Longish spells, not that he's had to, obviously, here. Uh, but he's renowned for that, you know, and, and he's played a lot of first-class cricket. So you get to learn your game, but also you learn your body as well. I find with a lot of young quicks, and this is not confined to England by any means, but a lot of young quicks, and Pat Cummins has actually spoken about this, uh, that you don't know your body when you're a young kid and you're pushing it and you're not, you haven't necessarily evolved your action to protect yourself from injury. Um, someone like Ollie Stone, I mean, we cross our fingers that he's going to be okay, but th th there's a distinct possibility that he will b get stronger as he gets older. Um, Boland has got to a point where he's probably his absolute peak as a as a physical specimen and as a fast bowler with all the skills that he's he's learned and absorbed over the last ten years and mm. more. I think Ben mentioned on the last pod he's just so accurate. Like if you're accurate and you get it to nibble. At 85 miles per hour, that's a, that's a pretty lethal combination. Yeah. You don't have to be there, 90 miles per hour. I mean, to, I'll just I'll say, tell you what, a, a better answer or a better thing to add is that if you're going to survive as a, as a fast, fast medium bowler in Australian cricket, then you need to bowl at your optimum at all times. 
and you can bowl at your optimum at all times because there are, the games are not coming that thick and fast. So you can you can have a week off, two weeks off. You can build your body back up to that that first class game, and of course, you know they play fewer first class games than 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 they do in England. Then you are ready to go, and you can therefore preserve yourself for longer, and you can bowl faster, more consistently for longer. In England, as everybody knows, but coaches are saying it more and more, Gary Kirsten said it to me a couple of weeks ago, he said the thing is in England, you can get away with bowling at 70%. You can get away with bowling at 70% because the pitches and the conditions and the general intensity of county cricket, the sheer prevalence of four-day cricket enables you to bowl within yourself. Yeah, definitely. Scott Boland would not have survived... And Scott Boland is not a rich man, by the way. You know, it's not a cushy gig being a state cricketer in Australia. Uh, he wouldn't have survived unless he was bowling at full tilt uh, for, for the last 10 years. He just wouldn't wouldn't still be going. The other thing I'd say on how he's been successful in the two tests he's played is that actually just compare him to Pat Cummins. Pat Cummins doesn't bowl. Pat Cummins can bowl 90-ish miles per hour, but quite often some of his best, sales, best spells aren't. Um, yeah, and he I kind t- of bowls sorry. slightly within himself sometimes, I feel, or maybe he's just a bit tired, but at 85 to yeah. 87 miles per hour, just hits the same spot time yeah. and time and again. And Boland is slightly slower you know than what, what I Cummins thought, does When there. I was watching Cummins the other day, the, 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 I was going to swear, the folly of the criticism that Joffre Archer got in the yeah. first 12 to 18 months of his test career, the criticism he got because he wasn't breaking speed gun records every every other day when you look at Cummins who bowls as you say 85 to 90 percent uh, of his optimum uh, and is relentlessly effective at that point but if he if he if he sniffs it if he needs to if he needs to ramp it up on you know on day four at the Gabba or wherever it might be on a quick one then you will see him you'll see him bowl 145 clicks of course you will you'll see him bowl 90 plus in 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 our terms uh yeah, and it really struck me. I think it was the the Melbourne game. Just thinking, yeah, we really did Archer a massive disservice. Anybody who questioned it, and there there were a lot as well, and big beasts as well. You know, in grandees of English cricket who should have, should have known better. Frankly, what what kind of I wonder from that is the fact that Australia always have this carousel of quicks. So they when when they when they have a bowler like Cummins. They're not thinking about, oh, he could, he's our express guy. He can be that enforcer guy, whatever. It's just like, they're all quick. Just bowl like you're going to bowl. Yeah, that's bowl a good accuracy. point. A good Archer point. was like a, he's, he's a phenomenon for us because we don't see people at that pace. And so when someone comes like that, you don't really know what to do with them. Yeah. And you think, oh, he's our quickest bowler. So he's got to play a different role to every other bowler. They have to be the enforcer. Very if you true. bowl over 90 miles, you have to be the enforcer. And also another thing I'd say is that Australia over the last four years have almost exclusively picked the same three pace bowlers. Stark, Hazelwood and Cummins have played the vast majority of their tests. So that and means also, that, also rocked up with the 2020 World Cup, you know, with all these sort of yeah, fucking yeah, new yeah, ideas. Yeah, rocked yeah. up with their test attack and won it. <laughs> yeah, shame that Lyon didn't play. Um, but they've basically played those only three guys. So we just actually haven't seen the, the blokes just below that level 
at all in intercricket. So we haven't seen much of Michael Nisi, we haven't seen much of Bowling, we haven't seen much of Jai Richardson. I think all three of them are really, really good and they would are. be really good test cricketers. And just because we haven't seen them doesn't mean they're not test class. And, and I think we kind of seen it with I all three Jai in the series. I thought Jai Richardson did a couple of couple of things in, the, in just played the one test. I think. <laughs> he played one test, played, got played a five. Yeah. See you later. He bowled a couple See of in the, England couple in twenty twenty three that suggested that there is a real, real bowler I think he's in so there. good. I, mean, I think he's so good. That sort of snap off the pitch yeah. from just short of a length that suddenly it's flying past your chest and you glove it to first slip. You know, that, yeah, that's I a mean, test match bowling. If, if Joe Richardson was English, he would be lead of the attack. We'd be, we'd be talking about England must look after this this gem. He's a future <laughs> of English cricket. He's going to be the lead of the attack. For the next I think because he, he is that good. <laughs> yeah. It's just England don't produce... Yeah. Uh, consistently, those like, must look after him and then don't look after yeah, him. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to loop back in in depth, but um, but the, 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 <laughs> but the Anderson thing um, obviously still has to be a part of the England side until yeah. until he carks it because uh, I mean that spelly bowled at Melbourne mm-hmm. third Test match, yeah. six overs, one for one, one for one. But I think he he had he had someone dropped. So I think he might have had a Lab- he, he had he Lab- Shane kept drop, on beating Harris. That's right. Ha- Harry, Harry was he, very lucky to yeah. have that. And I mean, it was late at night, right? You know, and it was Christmas time. So I wasn't actually studying it ball by ball or writing anything down. But it was mesmerizing, mesmerizing yeah, really stuff. Was. And I, this is not a revelation that he's really good at bowling for sure. But to, to, to just say thanks, thanks for the memories at this point in particular, I think it's just, just a crazy idea yeah. by Vaughan, who, who, is, who is otherwise bang on the money. From an Australian point of view, um, Usman Khawaja will open the batting alongside David Warner uh, at Hobart with Marcus Harris dropping out. Uh, Australia have not yet, at the time of recording, made a call on Scott Boland's fitness. Um, some other England men's news. Uh, Harry Brook has been called up to the T20i squad for the upcoming tour of West Indies that starts in nine days. Um, Brooke, 22, was one of the standout batters in both the Blast and the 100 in 2021, but he's endured an, a horror run in the ongoing BBL. He averages six from seven games, a strike rate of 75. Whoa. Um, nothing says readiness for international cricket like a single-figure <laughs> average in the BBL. Um, in all seriousness, the England performance director, Mo Bobat, uh, before when England named their Lions squad for the, for the Australia tour, he talked about having a pecking order for each role. Um, so I just guess that with Billings playing the test match, they need cover for Billings. They just see Brooks at uh, Brook as the next guy uh, to bat in the middle order in white ball cricket. Um, I guess a few few bad games don't change that in England's eyes. Uh, I'd just say penny for, for Laurie Evans thoughts. He's going quite well. And uh, I guess you don't need to always look for the future in the same way you used to in international white ball cricket these days, just because there's a tournament every year and there's so much cricket to repair you around the world. Anyway, the women's Ashes. Uh, the men's Ashes wasn't particularly com- competitive, but there is still hope for a closely fought Ashes series this winter. Uh, the women's Ashes kicks off a week today, so next Thursday, 20th of January. Um, a reminder that it's a multi-format series. It kicks off with three T20Is, then the Test match, then the three ODIs. You get four points for winning the Test match, two for winning the white ball games, and if the Test is drawn, both sides get two points. Australia won the last three series, two of those in England, one in Australia. The 2019 series... Uh, wasn't close at all. Australia won that 12-4. Um, I guess a sign of the Australia strength, and I guess this is slightly ominous for England, I guess, is that um, their national selector, Sean Fegler, was saying the other day that Elise Perry is not guaranteed a spot in the T20 side, um, which uh, to more casual followers of the women's game might seem extraordinary. But her recent record with the bat, in particular in T20 cricket, isn't actually that great. She also wasn't very good in the recent WBBL with the bat. Um 
Elsewhere with the Australia squad, they announced their squad in the last few days. Alana King, uh, an uncapped leg spinner who's part of the Perth Scorchers squad, the one the most recent WBBL is included in the squad. Um, King was born on exactly the same day as me. So if you've ever wondered how old I am, there you go. Um, <laughs> Phil, um, do England have a hope? Uh, I asked Heather Knight this exact question. Really? <laughs> yeah, what, maybe. What, what did she say? Maybe Friday or Thursday, Friday last week. Um yeah, well, firstly, she's 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 fed up of towing the line and fed up of being the immaculate diplomat that she was in the early years of her tenure as in, as England skipper. She's a lot more outspoken now, um, and she's still ticking about what happened in last time out in 2019. She's still ticking, and she said uh, that the problem with that England side back then, when they got as you say, when they got smashed out of the park, they lost a couple of. Sort of tightish oh, the ODIs ones. Were quite there close, was an ODI yeah. that they should have won and they lost it I think by two wickets or something like that in the final over uh, they lost a couple of the, the clutch moments early on and then collapsed after that and I was at the game at Chelmsford the T20 game Meg Lanning got 100 England were like shirking in embarrassment at the end of that game um, I remember you talking about like the difference in athleticism just being yeah, in a different world yeah, yeah. And, and to watch the Aussies field against the English was, was a quite dramatic quite stark the difference in class um uh but her her reading of it is that not only did they play bad, badly collectively but they they went into their shell psychologically as well and she said that there was a, a dearth of leaders a dearth of um people taking responsibility there were too many people in that side at that time who were just falling back on coaches and captains theories and ideas and hiding behind those ideas uh in effect a dereliction of their own personal responsibility for their own games um and i get the i got the impression that she was tearing her hair out by the end of that summer uh too much softness in the in the team not enough gnarliness they've actively tried to change that culture she she told me in the last year or two how that's like quite that sounds like quite a hard thing to for do. sure yeah. for sure and she she was open enough to say look when we go out to australia we are not we, she said the, the quote she gave me Amy Jones is not going to be effing and blinding and in someone's face she's not that kind of character but what she can do is she can find a way to be more expressive and she was just using Amy as a particular example she can be more expressive more more extrovert in how she plays her cricket she can pick battles is what she said identify your opposite number and beat your opposite number and demonstrate your your place on that pitch not by being shouty and mouthy but by but by by winning those battles um and showing off she put it go out there and show off show off your skills it's really not many players talk this openly no, about yeah no. it's quite interesting um she was really good on it uh and clearly this is this is just this is the mantra that yeah. they've been trying to inject into that team did you say if, it, if that uh, was reflected anyway in their selections for the squads um Maya Boucher doesn't have an amazing domestic record to speak of she's one bolter Charlie Dean I know played at the end of the summer but she didn't have a professional contract this time last year she so did, did they see something in their she personality she didn't mention either it? of those um she did mention Dunkley as having the right sort of stuff uh and you see that as well in the way that she carries herself the way that she talks the way that she bats as well you know there's real personality there um, I think this is what they're trying to do. I think I think that, that they've they've moved away from being, or they're trying to move away from being a kind of slightly diffident, self-reflective kind of 
nice bunch of people, but to try and drag the culture a little bit more towards the sort of the Australian model, frankly. And Heather knows uh, that unless they front up, they'll get they'll get smashed. Um, Heather herself is in a in an intriguing place in her own career. She was player of the series out there in Australia last time out. After the 2017 World Cup, she she not, didn't overhaul her technique, but she evolved her technique to become more expressive, more attacking. They they worked for a month on changing her backlift to create more flow and more power. She worked with her batting coach who had, who'd identified that she just kept hitting fielders because there was a lack of power there because she'd, she'd grown up playing in the conventional way. Low backlift, stick in, play late, bat time. The game on a macro level is evolving, but specifically the women's game, you can see it, how it's changing almost week by week. Uh, That's what was so stark about the Australian side in 2019, that they were playing a game that I'd never seen female cricketers play before, and now that's just how they do it. That's the challenge for England and India and others to get to that point. Um, But what you are seeing, the, the evolution in Knights game is, I think, reflected in what's happening more broadly in women's cricket. Uh, she she says she learned a lesson when they played India in the test match last last summer. She said before lunch I was poking around. She said I, she said, I had a word with myself at lunch, came out after lunch, played my shots, took it back to them. She said I'm, that's how I'm going to play from now until the end of my career. Um, she is creeping up into that top bracket. I think in the last two or three years you've seen a, a, her night take her game onto that onto a different level. Um, she's always been in the shadow of Meg Lanning, and and the thing I wrote for, for the magazine, um, was a was a riff on that basically. Heather is a year and a bit older than Meg Lanning. They made a de- their debuts at similar times. Knight was playing in the game that Meg Lanning made her debut in, or debut series rather, and they still talk about it in Australia. The Meg Lanning hundred at Perth in 2011, run a ball hundred. Knight had made seventy from 120 balls, and Lanning went out there, second game, 18-year-old, smashed a runnable 100, changed the game, changed the game that afternoon. They still talk about it in Australia. Uh, Knight has been trying to find a way to hold on to her coattails, I think, ever since. And their careers run very much in parallel, those two, those two women. Uh, what I think we are possibly seeing um, is that the gap between the two of them as cricketers is, is narrowing. You talk about Elise Perry struggling for form, not not absolutely sure of her place in the in the short form formats at least. Meg Lanning's record recently as well. If you if we're kind of looking for hope, little kind of kernels of optimism, then then Lanning, who is the Bradman of women's cricket, her record in ODI cricket is phenomenal, by the way, as you know. But the stats again, I was looking at looking them up a few days ago. They are off the charts. But anyway. Um, she struggled in the BBL, six scores of 10 or under in 10 innings, Meg Lanning. Um, in the India multi-format series in October time, she struggled a little bit there, made 150 across the three, the three different segments of that, that series as well. So she's not coming in with any great form. She's had a bit of time out from the game as well. Uh, so look, she is, she is the greatest player, the greatest female player that there's ever been. Um, but she's not, totted up the numbers of late uh quite as quite as heavily as she as she has done in the past um 
and I asked Heather, and as I say, it was a really frank interview. She's fed up of playing, you know, towing the line. I said, how do you get her out, Meglani? She said, well, she said she's a genius between point and, and third man. You can put three people there and she'll just find the gaps. So it's the one coming into her. And she said, um, Catherine Brunt got her with a, with a back of the hand slower ball that came out as a googly. Sophie Eccleston, who is England's trump card out there, tall, brilliant left arm spinner, got, got one coming in on the arm. Uh, and she also said, and she doesn't like it upper. She doesn't like the short ball. And so, uh, you know, we, we will look to try and expose that weakness in our game. Oh, this sounds just a little bit like us before the men's ashes. For sure, for sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm merely reporting from the field. I'm merely reporting from yeah. the field. Yeah, that, that is really easy. I, what, that was a long answer. No, it's a good answer. The, and the short answer is probably not much chance. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> in, in India, India did uh, end Australia's very long uh, unbeaten record in ODI cricket. Uh, it's one name I want to pick out. Uh, we talked about her before on the show, but Darcy Brown is uh, 18. She's played a little bit of international cricket now, but she's properly good and also probably quick. We talk a lot about uh, uh, Izzy Wong being the future of England fast bowling on this show. Uh, Darcy Brown is younger and quicker um, and has international experience under about. I think she might open the bowling. She's had another really good WBBL. Um, so, yeah, I think... She is someone who's not played in Ashes before, who I think could have a really, really good series. Um, moving on to... She's in uh, Bugsy Malone, Darcy Brown. That's a reference I've not got. Blousey, Blousey Brown. With England's tour of West Indies coming up shortly, sportsbreaks.com are offering a once-in-a-lifetime cricket experience. They're supplying packages for England's test in Barbados, truly one of cricket's bucket list events. We've got sportsbreaks.com managing director Rob Slauson on the show to talk about the tour. Rob, great to have you on. Firstly, can you tell us a little bit about sportsbreaks.com? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having us on, first and foremost. Yaz, it's great to join you this afternoon. Uh, In terms of sportsbreaks.com, so we... um, came about in late 2019 and I guess prior to that and this is quite important really prior to that myself and a lot of the team were at Thomas Cook Sport so we'd, we'd been there for a number of years I myself have been in sports travel for 15 years and a lot of the guys similar to me so we came across uh, and and created sportsbreaks.com in late 2019 and from there to where we are today, we're clearly involved in the cricket in, in the West Indies, but we're also heavily involved in domestic cricket. We're involved in football, rugby union, darts, NFL. So we, we've got uh, official relationships with everybody from um, Manchester United through the NFL, through Lancashire Cricket. We're an official tour operator for the Rugby World Cup in 23. So we've got quite a broad sports travel background and remit. Yeah, that's quite a, that is quite a broad variety. Um, specifically on the 10-day break package of the Barbados, what's included in sportsbreaks.com's package? Yeah, so for the 10 days, so you, you, you get your return flights. So we got flights from London and Manchester, which is, is a little bit different from some of the other operators. We'll get you to and from your resort hotel. So when you land in Barbados, there's a transfer laid on there. You clearly get your, your, your match tickets, so five days worth of match tickets. And those can be upgraded as part of the, the customer journey. Um, we've got a choice of hotels in, in Barbados. We will have our staff out there uh, should you need us. So we'll, we'll actually have staff that, that see you out of the UK and, and greet you in when you get to Barbados and, and we're on hand should you need us out there. Uh, and clearly you're covered from a, a protection perspective. So all the bonding's in place at all, add to all, the, all the important stuff that sometimes doesn't get talked about that, that, that probably should, certainly in, in the current climate. 
and, and I guess we hope that we've got you covered for the 10 days. You know, as I say, we'll get you there, we'll look after you while we're there, we'll bring you back and, and we'll take care of you. So yeah, so for people who might not have been on a holiday like this before, what makes sportsbreaks.com's 10-day package unique in comparison to some other travel providers? Yeah, I, I think the, the two things for us that, that I guess make this unique, because clearly there's some other good businesses doing this and, uh, and offering trips to the cricket, which is great, is is the price. So I guess we're, you know, we're very competitively priced in the marketplace and I encourage people to, to jump onto sportsbreaks.com and, and follow the obvious links to the, the Barbados um, packages. The fact that we've done a, a Northwest departure is, is different from a lot of the other operators. So I think there's quite a, a London-centric market out there, but we, we've also put a Manchester departure on there to try and cover... You know, certainly the northwest, but a, a good portion of the north of England as well. And then it's the care that comes with it. You know, hopefully everyone goes there, has a great time. The weather's fantastic. The cricket's good. But we're also, you know, we've got you covered from that. The bonding perspective, we've got you covered with a COVID guarantee. So hopefully, you know, people have a look at, at what we're offering and have a chat to us. They'll see that we're, we're slightly different and, and we do have you covered to get out there. Can you just talk through the COVID guarantee and also touch, touch on uh, what happens if someone un, is unable to travel to the West Indies due to COVID restrictions? Yeah, and, and there's different levels. So I guess without me prolonging this, this conversation too long, our full guarantees are on the website. But effectively, if, if the event is cancelled or moved or behind closed doors due to COVID, you know, we, we've got cover in there that, that is you know, all the way up to a full refund. It might be that you can't make it because you've got um, COVID yourself, say, prior to travel. Then, you know, we would we would recommend you taking out the relevant insurance to travel. But, but fundamentally, if, if, if the cricket doesn't happen because of COVID, we've got that guarantee in place and, and that is part of the booking process. So hopefully you can book with, with confidence and, and know that you're covered. Touch what it doesn't. The worst doesn't happen, but you know, it's important that we take care of that. Mm, you, you mentioned earlier on, um, I guess, the kind of, uh, the other packages that you guys have. Um, do you offer any other packages for other cricket events? Yeah, so I guess as we stand um, here today, the biggest product that we've got is, is a domestic cricket offering up in Manchester. So we've got a, an official relationship with Lancashire Cricket and we work with the guys at Emirates Old Trafford for a number of years. And we've got our own um, low-level hospitality concept there. So we've got the sportsbreaks.com terrace. Uh, and we're on sale already for the international fixtures this summer. So the games against South Africa and, and India. When the, the T20 Blast games, um, uh, the fixtures are out, we'll be on sale with, with those games. And we'll look to grow the domestic product this summer. So hopefully you'll see sportsbreaks.com pop up a few of the grounds around England. And as and when the overseas tours kick back in again, so you know the, the South Africa tours, the Australia tours, Caribbean, Sri Lanka, you know, we'll be all over those as well and offering those tools. Awesome. Um, and then finally, what would your final words be to anyone who is interested in the trip to the West Indies? Oh, I mean, well, I'm almost talking to myself here because on my bucket list has always been Barbados and I've never been, I've been worked in, in sports travel and, and worked within cricket for so long. I've never been to, to Barbados. So I, I should probably book this myself, but I guess have a, have a, have a look on the website. So get on sportsbreaks.com. Give us a call. So we've got a dedicated... Um, Sports team sat in the office not far from me now. Some of the guys have actually been to Barbados themselves, or if not Barbados, have done an overseas cricket tour with us in the past. But I guess, it, you know, bucket list terms sometimes probably gets misused a little bit, but I really think a test match in Barbados has got to be on most people's bucket list. 
you know, in in March, where we are now in Manchester, it will probably be wet, grey, miserable. Hopefully you get out there, you, you're looking at great weather, great beaches, great, you know, great party atmosphere, food and drinks, fantastic. And you've got five days of what hopefully will be brilliant cricket as well. Yeah, England might actually win a game out there as well. Anyway, it's been great having you on, Rob. Thank you very much for your time. No, thanks for your time, guys. Oh, the South Africa-India series has been fun, and it is fun. R- literally, as we record now, Pant is, a, is approaching a, a fairly remarkable 100. Um, it's a nice reminder of how good Test cricket can be when you've got two teams who are uh, competitive all the way through. I mean, the the second Test match was amazing. <laughs> um, South Africa chasing... What are you trying to say, Has? <laughs> well, yeah, you can work that one out for yourself. Uh, South Africa chased 240-odd, uh, getting there with seven wickets in hand and Dean Elgar scoring an amazing 96 not out. Genuinely one of the best innings I think I've ever seen from an opening bat. Just so Dean Elgar as well, <laughs> yeah. is it? You can just imagine him kind of mentally readying himself for that fourth innings and just be like with you know with a smile on his face just like yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna guts it out I'm gonna I'm gonna get hit I'm gonna play a miss and yeah I'll probably still still end up winning the game really difficult pitch as well it was it was really up mm. and down I think Crickvis posted something saying that actually batting on that last day was slightly easier than it had been in the days before but that that's not comparing it to much that was um really up and down on day two that was one of the worst I was genuinely one of the worst pitches for inconsistent battles I've seen in quite a long time in test cricket um but it's just been a really it's been a really interesting series because obviously we, we talked about Quinton de Cox retirement uh after the first test he wasn't, wasn't going to play the series anyway because the birth of his kid but there isn't other than other than Elgar there isn't really an established test bat in the top six for South Africa and uh, they've got a really long tail Marco Janssen who's a brilliant bowler He's batting seven. He's only done that once in first-class cricket before this series, and he got a pair. Um, you know, you, you had players step up in ways that you haven't. They haven't got the massive scores. Been a low-scoring series. It's been really important. Keegan Pete's got a brilliant seventy here uh, in the in the third test that's going on at the moment uh, in the first yeah, well, innings. And Temba Bavuma. Right. Some people who might not watch him play go, "Oh, he's only scored one test, hundred and fifty or test matches." But this series, he looks absolutely brilliant when he's been in. Yeah, and again. Um... The benefit of sticking with players and letting them work it out, uh, identifying talents and then backing them. Um, Bavuma is a brilliant, brilliant story. The evolution of his game is a brilliant story. There's all kinds of other brilliance, of course, attached to him. But specifically that, um, he now looks like a high-class test match player. I think it's in part a consequence of being given the captaincy role in, in some of the white ball stuff. I think that has secured his place in his own mind. Um, and he's he, technically he's superb, superb. He reminds me of like a sort of pound shop Tendulkar, um, the way that he plays. Uh, he's very, very strong through the V. You know, he, he straight drives nicely, plays late under his eyes. Um, you know, he, he works it through mid-wicket tidily now, and he, he's got a bit more expansive as well. You know, he was good against the spinner. If they drop short, he, you know, he'll, he'll go airborne as well. And he... he he looks like a, a player who's who's shed the self-consciousness and now he's just, yeah. just going out there and playing. I always liked him as a player, by the way. I was at Cape Town for that 100. It was a flat track, but, you know, he batted really, really well for that, that 100. Um, he, he has a bit of a block when he gets to 50 or 60, which is problematic. Um, I think it was the second test or maybe the first, and he walked down the track having got to 50. Oh, it's a crazy shot. Didn't need to crazy do it shot. because he played so nicely within himself. So so there's an issue there. The other one is Markram as well, who has a record. I think he averages 36, 37. He scored the best 27 I've ever seen <laughs> yeah. in a run chase. Yeah. Technically, I think he's he's good. He looks 
He reminds me of Callis a little bit in the way that really? he gets gets in behind it. Yeah, he has a he has a similar kind of backlift and kind of boxer's stance where you, you're rocking yeah. on, onto the back foot and the front. Um, he, he he blocks it like Callis. Gets in behind it very nicely like Callis. Problem is he keeps getting keeps getting bumrads, you know, which 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 happens. Uh, but I think I think he will become a, a very good player for them. I mean, he's you know he's made hundreds against made 150 yeah. against Australia, so he, he can play. He's just not done it yet. But I, I find myself increasingly fond of this South African side. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be a really what, good series when they come over here in the summer. What yeah, it will. What I found interesting is um, when the series was starting, India going here, they've won in Australia, you know, 2-1 opening. <laughs> uh, and in my head, I'm thinking that, that India kind of just going to control that series from, from the get-go. And, you know, they win that first test, De Kock retires, and there's... For the last two, three years, there's just been this sort of constant doom and gloom in South African cricket. And my just the assumption was that it's going to be a quite a comfortable series win for India. And that in a in a way that them winning in South Africa this time, for the first time ever, first test series win there, wouldn't actually mean a great deal. But when we are seeing what's happening, what's how it's playing out, it will mean a great deal because this is a this is a proper contest with with South Africa. Um, like you, like you're saying, this is a team that's quite easy to kind of get behind because there there are the guys you know who've been there and done it. You've got Elgar, you've got Rabada, but then you see someone like Peterson come in, who's also just like quite a classical batter, who's you know clipping beautifully through mid wicket, he's strong square of the wicket. Just there, there's enough there. Jansen has got um, something about him. Um, sorry, can I say a couple more things on? On the on the series, that I find quite interesting. One is how completely different styles of batting have been very successful at different points. So, for example, in that run chase, Elgar, you know, the word that everyone uh, describes Elgar with is it's gritty. Uh, you know, resolute in defence, taking body so, blows. I know. It's, 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 so there's a reason why people use it. But I mean, literally, right now we're watching one of the great counter-attacking innings from Rishabh Pant. After, by the way, playing one of the worst shots I've ever seen uh, earlier on in the series, where he got a three-ball duck. Um, in the Joburg test where first ball wild swing to a pretty good uh, ball second ball gloves one quite a good quite quite a good delivery and does well not to get out then third ball comes down the wicket and gets out after a good bit of sledging from Rassi van Dusen at short leg this is this will always be the pattern with him you've just got to be patient when mm. when the oh literally as you say that uh Rishabh Pant has come down the wicket and he's um, he's, 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 bat, he, he's, he's broken he's his back, back further right? than the ball I think uh, where's the ball gone we don't know. Anyway, uh, Rishabh Pant, his, his bat has gone about 10 yards oh, behind right, okay. him. Wow. They haven't shown where the ball is. Anyway. Good content, that. Taha, you were saying about Rishabh Pant. And then you just have to be patient with him because then eventually, because he will have series like the one he did in England where, um, you know, he didn't get many runs uh, and then just got that 50 in the last test. But he just didn't, he didn't look the same player that he did in Australia. But he, we know he can play in England. He scored that century against the Oval a few years ago as well. He can play everywhere. Um you just, I, I got, think, you, you just kind of have to ride it out with him because then he's going to yeah. end up playing the series winning knock. Yeah. The, the, the management deserve a, a little bit of credit, I think, with emboldening him to to be himself. Uh, and you imagine the scrutiny that Indian cricketers are, are under and the, the, the stick, the grief that he would have received on the back of that horror show shot in the second test. Well, fair play to the management for for, for basically liberating him to continue playing his own way 
um, the the contrast would be somebody like Josh Butler, who you know who can't seem to find the right kind of tempo in Test cricket and and feels quite introverted, and 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 Pant is given complete responsibility to to all flights of fancy, all kind of wild extrovert decisions. Well, he's he's given the platform to do that, and and that takes smart and astute management. I think. Yeah, I don't want to talk about Butler again, but there's a very good article by Mark Ramakash in the Guardian about Butler kind of drawing on his experiences from coaching him a few years ago, which is very interesting, definitely worth read. Uh, yeah, and also the quality of bowling's been amazing. We mentioned Janssen, right. Boomer, Rabal is back to his best, which is very very exciting. He's, not, I think, if we're being honest, his record is ridiculous, obviously, but if we're being honest, he's not quite actually been at that top 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 level in the last couple of years so it's good to see him Dean Elgar said after the second test match when he won the game Elgar he said we had some pretty choice words him and Rabada and he was quite indifferent in that first test match Rabada he's a bit down on pace he 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 had he seems to be sometimes away with the birds a bit Rabada doesn't he He seems like he's slightly disengaged at certain moments but then he's also a champion as well Mm. and since that it's been brilliant. Yeah. In this third test match in particular, he's been absolutely superb. It's an amazing time we're recording this because we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're less than a day out from the result unless the weather intervenes. India will win this and game. It's, and it's a huge result either way. India have never won in South Africa. And if they win this series, they're 2-1 up in England at the moment, just won in Australia. You know, that, that completely confirms their status as the premier side in the world. Um, Whereas South Africa, to win this series, given how inexperienced so many of their players are, this would be right up there with some of their biggest wins. Obviously, they've had more decorated sides than this, but I think this would be a more important win than, than any they've had in a very long time. Great um, pitches. Great pitches out there. Perfect cricket pitches for me. I think the second one was. I think, I think yeah, but did. still, still a geezer's made at 96 not out to win the game. In the end. Fourth innings makes 96 not out to win the game. I, I don't think pitches should be that inconsistent on days one, two and three. I think it's fair enough of that comes into it later on the test match but I thought that was too okay, early but may, that. maybe that's ticked over slightly too much and Joe Berg has that reputation I mean it was remarkable the parallels with the previous yeah, test crazy, between the yeah. two of them uh, which also flattened out as well that mm. that, that game maybe from maybe two or three years ago but the first test at Centurion as well and this this test match here at Cape Town if you bat well you can score runs you can score third innings hundreds as Pant is on the verge of doing here you can score fourth innings hundreds um but also, you can, you can get cleaned up in a session. You know that that to me is is Test cricket as it should be in the modern in the modern game. Mm, absolutely, um, we're a bit late on this, but we haven't mentioned in detail Bangladesh's win over New Zealand in the first of the two Tests in that series. Have you not? Did you not do this last week? Uh, we 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 did a post Test match pod and we referenced it. Me and Ben. It's the biggest story in well in the, in the game. Ben, ben and I did a twenty minute YouTube video on this on the morning of the result. So that's if you want if you want. Proper analysis on that, you can you can head there. Um, but yeah, just a couple of for for people who haven't watched that YouTube video, there's a couple of points I wanted to say about that result. Number one, how amazing the, the Eberdot Hussein story, uh, the Bangladesh uh, Air Force soldier uh, who only really took up playing Red Bull cricket reasonably recently. The guy with officially the worst ever bowling average in Test cricket before that Test match, taking six for forty. Um, to rip open that game on a reasonably flat pitch. And I thought it was quite interesting. We've been talking so much about like why uh, why have England not been very good? Why are they underperforming, etc.? What the role of coaches? Bangladesh had a, had a clear game plan on that wicket set by Otis Gibson, their bowling coach, to bowl straight. Uh, Crickviz said it's like one of the straightest a team has ever bowled in Test cricket. And it was hitting the stumps time and time again. And it caused carnage. Um, so that was brilliant. And also, 
Bangladesh, they won the under-19 World Cup a couple of years ago and two of their under-19 guys are already in that side and put in reasonably good performance. Sorry for Islam, the left arm quick. He took three from the first innings and Mamadou Joy scored 70-odd in the first innings as well, in the batting. So, um, yeah, I mean, you really hope with Bangladesh, given the population, how how big cricket is in that country. They're almost like, I, I kind of feel they're the sleeping giant. Yeah, there's 150 million population in Bangladesh. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. They are the emergent side in world cricket. But for crying out loud, I mean, when did they last play a test match in England? 20, 2010, 2010, yeah. 2010, before that, 2005. So they played, what, four test matches yeah. in, in 22 years? In Australia, I should know, but I, yeah, they haven't played Similar, in many, many, yeah. many years. Um, I mean, my word, we have to acknowledge that and write that wrong. You know, I mean, yeah. it, it flows from us. We have to extend the invite. It is. I, th- I find it strange that Bangladesh don't play here, given that the diaspora yep. Bangladesh have in this country. You get really good crowds. There, oh, yeah, I mean, they're, right. they, they were they kind of the be... hit of the World Cup a couple of years ago. Exactly. Exactly. On, on a cricketing level, it's justified, and on a kind of dull commercial bums on seats ticket yeah. sales, then also, of course, it's absolutely justified. And yet, there's no sign of it. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, head Rubbish. to our YouTube channel if you want a, like a 20 minute video on that Bangladesh win. Uh, Bangladesh were absolutely annihilated in that second test match. Um, we'll move on now. Um, <laughs> so, so we've, we've had a couple of um, bits of news in the Yorkshire story in the last few days. Um, I'll quickly run through that before going to you. Ryan Tybottom has apologised for comments he made during an interview with Sky Sports News where he suggested that Yorkshire ought to try and forget about the racism scandal that has engulfed the club. Uh, in a column in the Daily Mail, Azim Rafiq has said that he believes that he, he believes that uh, David Lloyd's departure from Sky does not represent change and that he hoped that it did not come as a result of Lloyd being named by Rafiq himself in the DCMS hearing in November. Uh, he wrote, so I really hope this, his departure from Sky had nothing to do with me because it was not my intention for him to lose his job. That is not change. It just looks like a case of someone throwing the book at them to make themselves look good. It is not fair and does not sit well with me at all. Uh, and yesterday, Lord Patel uh, spoke of how important it is for Yorkshire to regain international cricket, essentially the finan- financial future of the club. Um, Ty, what did you make of the, the Sidebottom interview? I guess that was the bigger story and the subsequent apology from Sidebottom, who's recently appointed as interim coach. Yeah, I think I saw it quite early on when it was just sort of put on Twitter by Sky, I think. Um, uh, immediately quite found it quite jarring. Uh, not just talking about um, sort of forgetting it, but also just about... I think you mentioned not wanting to be involved in the politics of it all and it's just yeah it's just I mean to be fair to him he apologized and said it was a poor choice of words um but I think it just kind of um emphasizes the whole idea of you may even replace the figures that that are involved in the club but um we're talking about a cultural shift um and people kind of getting trying to get people to actually kind of understand the problem. Um, you know, Cybottom's hired as an interim coach. He's only there briefly, but, you know, you're bringing new people and you're bringing people back into this club, then they've got to get an understanding of just how great the situation is. Um, and yeah, I mean, mainly I just found the interview quite, quite jarring. I mean, even, even the, the, the Sky presenter interviewed, <laughs> I think, uh, almost basically said at the end, um, that, you know, she was basically trying to say that you you obviously don't mean forget, mean kind of learn from it basically. So it kind of, I don't know. Yeah. I guess it was a summation of how much is still left to do. Yeah, I, 
I kind of felt sorry for Cybottom to a degree. Um, it was good that he apologised so quickly. I just thought it was didn't paint a great picture of, of what's the current situation at Yorkshire is because it's not as if Cybottom doing loads of interviews here. It was the obvious question. Uh, I kind of wondered like, why why hasn't this been thoroughly prepared? Why isn't an answer and you know a stance been thoroughly prepared? And what does that say about the current state at Yorkshire if that's not happening? And Lord Battelle gave a quite a punchy interview with Dan Rowan on the BBC about how much change has happened. And sure, on the surface there has, but how how have they not prepared for you I know, think, a very I think important media engagement? The thing that kind of worries me almost is like you you just think, well, we've sacked this whole load of people, we'll just bring in new people and that's it. And then that kind of points to the whole issue that's been we've been talking about it's not really about the individuals right so it's not really about just sacking the players it's about the whole culture of it the whole system of it and so that's i mean maybe we're reading too much into just one interview um and someone just saying the wrong thing um but but it it felt kind of indicative of just how how difficult the the whole process is and how long they've got to far, yeah. far they've got to go as well from from what i understand it's it's been a case of fighting fires really for Goff since he's gone into the job. Um, this would not have been anywhere near his agenda two or three months ago. Uh, he's been suddenly thrust into this and admirably decided to take the job on. Uh, it's not like he wasn't enjoying life beforehand, you know, and picking up some very tidy checks and all the rest of it in his media career. He's taken this on out of sense of responsibility and he has called in two favours from two of his ex-mates. Ex-mates, sorry, two mates who are ex-cricketers. Um, and Steve Harmison, who I know a little bit, he's he's not going to do this job beyond the next couple of months, right? He is not involved in Yorkshire in any way, shape or form in the long term. He's quite open about that. This is not an interim coach with a view to becoming a more full-time coach. This is Harmison. Uh, I don't know the side bottom story uh, internally and I don't know the bloke at all personally. It may well be that they're thinking that there might be something more substantial there or it may well be that Goff has scoured around, looked for two people who he trusts, who he likes and who he thinks can do a job to go around a shell-shocked and broken first team squad and say look there's still something to play for here uh and try and rouse a few a few souls yeah i mean the dad... and, and i think that that at this point is the extent of the of the job i'm not making excuses for for that sort of clumsiness um but you can only imagine how chaotic Absolutely. it is and, and that's why and that's, and that's why i have sympathy for sidebottom he, he's come in in a who, disastrous who is, situation who is not an especially astute diplomat well, type it, figure he doesn't either. like if you, we shouldn't expect all cricketers to be, um, you know, moral leaders. And I wasn't expecting like a, you know, a brilliant answer or him to completely revolutionise what's happening at Yorkshire. That's not really his remit. That line but, is a stinker. Exactly. But I just kind of like, surely someone prepare, prepare sure. a top sure. answer. And yeah. it clearly wasn't. Because yeah. I think it's really important what you mentioned is it wasn't just the forget line. It was kind of the, the general message of trying to be completely separate from it that was, was a bit off. Um, anyway, moving on. How are the England lads getting on in the BBL? I hear you cry. Well, I'll quickly <laughs> run through that just now. Uh, George Garton is going more than 10 and over for the Adelaide Strikers. Uh, ben Duckett is averaging 27, a strike rate of 138 for the Heat. Tom Abel only played a couple of games for them and didn't do much in either. Four English players at the Hurricanes. Um, 
Brooke, as we mentioned earlier, he's averaging six. Tom Lambie played three games where he didn't score a run or take a wicket in any of those games. Did he bat? Uh, yeah, he batted once, I think. Um, Jordan Cox played one game for them and Jordan Thompson has done okay with the ball, taking seven wickets of 15. Reese Topley's got nine wickets for the Renegades doing okay, uh, eight runs and over. Joe Clark, after a very, very bad start, is now doing very well. Overall, he averages 31 and striking 150. He's the one. Um, as He's I, the one. As I mentioned earlier, there's Laurie Evans. He's doing well. Similar number to Clark, at slightly lower strike rate. Tamar Mills has done very well with the ball for the Scorchers. He's averaging 15 there. Neither James Vince or Tom Curran have done particularly well for the Sixers. Uh, Tom Curran, bit of news this week, he's now injured for quite a long time. He probably won't play until at least May. Uh, Chris Jordan has three wickets at 47, but with a pretty good economy. And for the Sydney Thunder, Sam Billings, uh, and Alex Hales have both done very well for them. And Sakiba Mood after that uh, memorable debut where he took, I think he took a four for, he's been pretty expensive since then. Um, and finally, uh, West Indies and Ireland are currently playing an ODI series. They're supposed to play T20s as well, but because of uh, the number of COVID cases in the Ireland camp, the ODI series has been rescheduled somewhat and the T20I series has been binned. Um, I'm just going to mention an interview that Paul Sterling did with Matt Roller at ESPN Quick Info, where Sterling basically said that bubbles he feels are no longer for the safety of players, but basically for people um, in charge to line their pockets. And he predicted that players are going to uh, pull out in the future, um, from are more likely to pull out from cricket. And I, and I guess, like, I know the last couple of months haven't been particularly normal in the UK, but over the last two years, we have progressively been life has, has kind of got more normal but for players they're still so often trapped in these bubbles and uh, particularly these international tours where they just the boards are just desperate for players not to catch as they can get something on the television and at the end of the day that that that, that is all that matters um, in some people's eyes um, and yeah you kind of you kind of do worry for players they've been shipped from all over the world to play in these series and the players surely can't be performing at the level they 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 are expected to, to play at um, so yeah, that's definitely something to watch. Yeah, I, I think, I, I think the, the 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 punters out there who look upon international cricketers and think, ah, oh, what I'd give to do that job, and who fairly and legitimately say, well, they paid a lot of money to do it, um, find it hard. Certainly initially, and I did too, find it hard to uh, understand the mental and psychological impact of the constant churn of hotel, hotel, quarantine, hotel, isolation, hotel, quarantine, etc., etc. Uh, speaking to people just conversationally who've done it, support staff, coaching staff, players, uh, we cannot comprehend it unless we've done it. Um, we've all made sacrifices on an individual level, of course we have, uh, but this is relentless for, for many of them. And it's not an excuse. It's not a, a kind of a cushy line to say we're trying to keep our people well or when Morgan says this can't be sustained. It's not, it's not a, a smokescreen. It's absolutely coming from the gut. Um, and I've been increasingly convinced of that the more, the more I've spoken to people who don't have an agenda and aren't trying to sort of twist anybody's arms and aren't asking for a woe is me tale. They're just telling it. As it is, you know, mini breakdowns, major breakdowns, bouts of depression. Uh, as, as we touched on earlier, players are making their own decisions for their own mental well-being. 
you know, people are turning down big money at the IPL because they can't cope with it. They can't cope with more, more of the same. You know, I've spoken to some cricketers who I would class as, you know, happy-go-lucky cricketers. And I've spoken to them and they can barely get a sentence out stuck in their hotel rooms and all the rest of it. Um, and I know that this is not a subject that plays particularly well among the, the, the punters and I understand why. Uh, but that is the reality, I think, increasingly so. So I understand what Sterling's saying. I understand exactly where he's coming from. Mm, absolutely. Um, we're going to finish off with a couple of questions from our listeners. Kat asks, um, top five wildest ideas for next England men's test captain, uh, <sighs> e.g. Uh, Chappers posited Sam Billings as a future captain if Hobart goes well and the stars align for him. <laughs> uh, any other improbable but technically possible ideas? Um, just I just want names. I don't want, don't want long explanations. Mayan Ali? <laughs> he's, no, but he's retired though. He's retired though. Yeah, but if you could, if you tempt him out, um, I think I've wrote, written about him as a when he did captain England yeah. uh, and spoke to him a couple of years ago, where I asked him about captaincy. And Fair enough. That that is wild. I'll give that, you that is wild. It's not. Gonna ha- <laughs> it's obviously not going to happen. Um, yeah. But I always thought he would be a, a would have been a really good captain and yeah, um, would almost fit in with his kind of. I wouldn't say he was a specialist captain, but he would, you know, he could contribute a bit with the bat, a bit with the ball, and then kind of just oversee the whole thing as well. Yeah. And, and, and you, you think as well that Moeen, Moeen, Moeen would look up, Moeen Ali, the captain, would look, look after Moeen Ali, the player. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so, captains yeah. have. Uh, Phil, any? Joe Root? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, 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 want, I want Root to, to carry on if he, if he wants it. By the way, um, no, but this is, no, this no, is a silly I, I know, question. I know, I know. Silly question. I know, I know, no serious answer. I know that's literally just in the brackets before before I, I I go down the Stuart Broad Road, which I know you've 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 had a look at that and spoken up on that. Um, I absolutely see that there is. It's not just pie in the sky idea. Uh, you know, he's got 150 Test matches of, of gnarly experience. He was described as having by Andrew Miller, our columnist, Crick Info editor on the magazine columnist and he, he said he has sufficient levels of arsiness to do the, to do the job he's 34 years old so you know for a year or two or three he could do it um I, I can see the logic there he certainly uh has the self-regard and the experience and the the ego and probably the respect as well overall um uh so yeah, I can I can see that in this in this nothing off the table culture now that I can see it. I can see that. You want some more ludicrous things? Uh, Besto. Who was it? So Barney, Barney Ronay was, was yeah, was Ronay wasn't it? Semi seriously suggesting Besto. I mean, that, that, that would be just imagining a team. That right? would be great to watch. It'd be I great think that's to watch. it. I think we've had two quite samey characters look. for like the last hundred. Ten tests, England have been captained let's, by two quite samey characters. Let's throw it back to um, 1988, um, the, the, the summer the of the four skippers. Chris Cowdery makes his debut right. as England captain. So if England have four the next day, summer... The amateur days. So if, if 2022 is the 1988... Right, so... Who are, who are four? So Root it's, starts. It's, right. Yeah, Root starts. Uh, then injury, injury, I guess. So Well, but maybe, maybe Root starts... Get beaten West Indies, yeah. think sod this for a game of soldiers. Yeah. Broad takes over, gets injured, yeah. so he only does a test or maybe two. Um, Tom Abel has scored a load of runs at the start of the season. He's he's a captain and he's posh and he's well bred and all the rest of it. So he gets the gig in the Chris Cowdery vein. Yeah. 
right? Or the Freddie Brown vein, to take it back even further. He gets the gig. He gets the gig. Breaks his finger. Yeah. Uh, and then we end up with Ben Stokes. There's your four. Hopefully, hopefully we was There's that. There's a lot of logic in yeah. James, James Vince, Captain's Hampshire. Um, <laughs> look, why not? He's Captain England Lions. Throw him in there. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's he's scored boatloads of runs from the start of the summer. He comes in after after Abel, and no, you know, Vince you, finishes up no, as England skipper. It's only Abel or Vince. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But this is this is this no. Is, but this, this one's for, for cats' amusement, right? Anyway. Um, and, and lastly, after... The broad, the broad thing is not completely ridiculous. I've, I've, and, and, and Andrew Miller has written in this upcoming issue why Stuart Broad should be England captain. And I think his tongue is only partially in his cheek. I mean, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I think two years ago, I would have absolutely gone down that route and I'm not completely against that now. Um, and another Andrew asks, uh, after the Bearstone Kawaja tons at Sydney, what are your favourite comeback slash redemption arc oh, centuries that oh, you remember? Uh, Take it away, Taha. Smith at uh, Edgebaston. Um, Claxon, obviously. Yeah, I was pr- it's a bit of an obvious one. Uh, Sam Pebbygate, a bit of an overreaction. Um, <laughs> didn't see him play Test Group for a year. Comes back, I quite enjoyed him just doing that work so well in that series just because I was so annoyed by not just the, the, the kind of the booing of him, uh, but more the whole people kind of you know taking the piss out of him crying and all that kind of thing and uh, and him just doing just you know him just doing his thing and yeah that first hundred i don't really remember the second one but the first hundred was very special i mean one two one for eight or whatever yeah exactly it was him and peter siddle put on that partnership and by the end um england had what a whole leg side field and he was just taking the piss just sort of piercing the gaps and becoming even i think when he's so in the zone and always having fun, he becomes even more exaggerated with his movements um, towards the offside. And he's just opening up and trying to just have fun. Um, yeah, that's the one that stands out. Phil? I'm trying to think of non-English ones. Uh, and pathetically, there's none coming to mind. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to have to go through the motions on this one. Obviously, Graham Thorpe's 0300 here against South Africa. Uh, in that great test match at the Oval that England somehow ended up winning, having conceded 470-odd on the first innings against Herschel Gibbs and the rest. Thorpe comes in having trailed, you know, some, some a fairly juicy past, some tabloid stories, some time out of the game, uh, comes back in, gets strapped on the mums and dads straight away. Second ball, I think it was, from Sean Pollock. Not given, would have been given on DRS, no question. Goes on and strums 120, and just got it makes makes double, and they win the game. So, so that's a that's a classic, that's a classic redemption arc one. Um, my personal favourite is obviously David Gower coming back in at Trent Bridge in 1993 after him and Gooch have fallen out uh, in a big way. It looks like he's never going to play for England again, and he's going to finish 30 runs shy of Boycott's all-time England record. Uh, they have a couple of injuries. Pakistan are in town and, and, and Wacker and Wazim are doing their thing. He comes back into the side. England are 1-0 down, comes back in. Third test match, makes 73. I bunked off school to watch it. And uh, he goes past Boycott. Uh, and Boycott and him kind of share a glass of champers afterwards. <coughs> so that was a beautiful moment. Um, and the other one that sticks in the mind was, was Botham when he was done for smoking dope and banned for a few months 1986 
and comes back into the side and it's New Zealand at home. I can't remember where it was. And first ball, huge away swinger against Bruce Edgar, I think it was, left-hander. Nicks it straight to Gooch at second slip. He juggles it, takes the catch. Um, so, yeah, it's not a bad way to get back. And that was the uh, who writes your scripts line from, from Gooch to Beefy. Uh, I've got a couple. Johnny Bairstow's first Test 100 against Africa because he that would, that would have been four years into his Test career, in and out the side. He scored millions of runs uh, in the county championship that season for Yorkshire. Kind of just demanded selection. Uh, comes in for the Trent Bridge Test. Uh, obviously bowled them out for 60. Uh, Root scores at 100 on the first day. Bairstow looked so good. I think pulled on straight to mid-wicket on about 75 late in the day. And you were like, oh, why did he do that, Johnny? And he, that, that 100 proved elusive despite him looking quite good for a bit without getting that massive score. And you still, even though he completely deserved a long run on the side, he hadn't got that 100 yet. And as I said, four years into being a test cricketer. Uh, and in that Cape Town test that everyone remembers for Stokes 258, the Pavuma 100 you mentioned earlier in the show. But for me, I think he cut, um, uh, I think the bowler was Stian Van Zyl bowling Filthy Meadows yeah. and um, Bairstow cut him away for four. And that that was, people talk about like rage, Bairstow rage hundreds, but the, his celebration for that hundred is my favourite Bairstow celebration. Um, you could tell how much that means to him, getting that monkey off his back. Uh, not test cricket, but it's got to be, you know, James Vince first. International hundred early this summer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good that, shout. That, that was that was amazing. Very good and shout. Possibly might never play for England again. And the other, the the, the non England one that I picked, a uh, bit of recency bias, but um, Tiramani against England, right? Um, last year because you know you know your, your stats guru nerds, which I'd probably include myself in this, are kind of like probably uh, laughing at you know internally laughing at Tiramani's genuinely awful Test record. Um, but also being a little bit confused, he, he actually does look quite good every time I've seen him back. You kind of, I kind of see the logic while they keep playing him, despite an average of 23. Um, but yeah, he scores that 100 and ever, ever since then it's been one of the best openers in the world. Yeah, no, um, that's so, very nice yes. indeed. So uh, can I, yeah, um, I'm probably playing with the criteria a bit, um, but one I remember really enjoying was Chris Rogers' first Test 100. Um, having played one Test in 2008, it was what, 36, 37? Oh, 35, I don't know, um, late 30s when he gets his uh, second test call up. Uh, I think it's at Durham where he scores 100 and he was kind of stuck in the 90s for quite a while, um, kind of bogged down uh, and eventually got there off, off Graham Swan who kind of bogged him down uh, and uh, just seemed quite emotional and quite like a, he'd, you know, he'd made a gazillion first class 100s, had been there, played county cricket, dominated Sheffield Shield. Um, but he finally got a Test hundred, and that was um, yeah, that was a special inning. Uh, Rishabh Pant here and now comes back from the, the, wor- the worst genuinely. innings, as you said to me, the worst naught you've ever seen. Worst three ball duck I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. second Test match, he's ninety eight, not out. Rabada bowls, <laughs> dot ball, move on. Yeah, ninety eight from one hundred and twenty eight from one hundred and ninety three for nine. I mean, this well, he's giving him out. He's giving him out. He's, no, he's not. He's feathered it. That's one for the over. Oh, yeah, okay, right, right. Good that I'm not on my um, You're a good podcaster. Commentary <laughs> not quite your, your game yet. Anyway, with Pant on 99, uh, thanks to Hoth, thanks Phil. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast, and we'll be back after the Hobart Test match. Cheers. Sports Social.
Social Podcast Network.